Hello again, everyone. You have reached Changing Reels, a proud member of the Modern Superior Network. For Changing Reels, I'm Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. For those of us joining the show for the first time, Changing Reels is a podcast dedicated to lesser seen or lesser appreciated movies. And our mission statement is to focus on diversity, both in front of and behind the camera. That way we can spread a little understanding and different points of view, which, Courtney, I think you'll agree, kind of needed right now. Yes, definitely. I think the only way we're going to get through the next four years is if we start having an open mind towards each other and really learning each other's stories and life's. No, I completely agree. Obviously, things have been a bit rough here in the States, but I want to share a quick story with you that will actually show how this has been having kind of a positive effect and that our message of trying to promote diversity is being heard because the director of Evidence, my pick for a short film in our first episode, Michike Don, she messaged me saying how grateful she was for the coverage. So it's it's kind of difficult to feel sometimes like what we're doing matters, either professionally, personally, or anything like that. But uh, thank you to Michike Don for sending us, uh, I guess, sending me that message and letting me share it because it's good to know that you know what we're doing works in some way especially when you get feedback from the artists themselves that's that's wonderful so if anyone listening out there has short film recommendations we want to hear them or even for feature length film recommendations because the movie we're going to be talking about this week is medicine for melancholy there are a few different reasons we're chatting about this one one is that it came to us via suggestion from dan heaton you can reach him via twitter at the Dan Heaton. You can also look at his blog at Public Transportation Snob. Dan wanted us to take a look at this because Barry Jenkins' latest film, Moonlight, is getting a lot of rave reviews and is seen as kind of a cultural mark that's important to consider at this time. We also wanted to do it because it was a suggestion from you, our listeners. So if you have a suggestion, please don't hesitate to let us know. I'll be including links for our Gmail and Twitter accounts, but also we'll be checking the comments. So if you want to hear something, let us know. Before we jump into the discussion on Barry Jenkins's Medicine for Melancholy, though, we don't have shorts for this week as it's been a very stressful week. So Courtney and I are just going to talk a bit about some movies that we have watched is a bit more directly related, mine more tangentially related, before we launch into our Medicine for Melancholy discussion. So, Courtney, thoughts, I suppose, feelings, and what you watched? The one I'm going to talk about is the obvious connection is Moonlight. And I must admit, when the suggestion came in from Dan, I was delighted. The reason being is because I saw Moonlight at the Toronto International Film Festival this past September, and immediately walking out of that, I had written down Medicine for Melancholy as a possible topic for our show. And I remember when that film played TIFF, I want to say back in 2008, and I missed it, but I remember comparing a lot of great things about it. So when I saw that Jenkins had a new film put on my priority list, and then I saw a trailer maybe about a month before the festival hit, the images alone from that trailer immediately put that film in my top five. I know Moonlight has been getting a lot of praise. I'm just going to add to it. It's a fantastic film. Right now, it's my favorite film of the year. I think I have it just ahead of the documentary OJ Made in America, and I think it's one that everyone should see because the film itself is about a young boy named Chiron who's living in the slums of Miami. His mother's a crack addict. He's getting bullied pretty much every day, has very few friends, and you see his life over three stages as a little boy as a teenager and as a grown man throughout all of that he's still kind of learning about himself and his own sexuality where it seems the entire community has pretty much identified him as being gay and unfairly has treated him based on that definition as you're watching this film and the heartache that he goes through barry jenkins manages to put a real empathetic spin on it I, I dare say hopeful spin um unlike for example boyhood which this film is getting compared a lot to and i'm personally going to try and avoid those comparisons because i look at them as two completely different films in boyhood i never once doubted that the main character would turn out okay that despite a few incidents in his life that his life as a young white male would be okay moonlight there's no guarantees. So you're watching this film, and as his life is going in the various directions, and you're seeing how his environment has 
ultimately change his direction. It's really powerful. It's kind of gloomy at times, but yet you walk away feeling inspired. It's it's a weird way to put it. I hope, Andrew, you get a chance to check it out because the performances are fantastic and the way how it's shot and the use of the neon colors within the Miami setting, it's just a wonderful film. So I'm glad that Dan recommended this and I implore everyone to go see Moonlight. Go discuss it. It's a wonderful film. In the last man, maybe six, seven years or so. From my perspective here in America, I mean, some of the absolute best movies that have been coming out have been centered around LGBT minorities. One of the movies we're going to talk about later on down the line, not sure when, is Dereza's Pariah. And even Short Bus, which was shortly after 9-11, that focused on a melting pot. And after seeing Medicine for Melancholy, and I can see how with your description of Moonlight, hope is important, but hope can also hurt but it's important to hold on to that before we uh, talk about my extremely different movie i'm used to cope you talked about how the environment played a part and how it shapes him and then visually speaking was there a particular shot or motif that you really liked through it the way how he uses especially when he's in his home life and he uses the purple the purple almost gives off a reddish glow there's a great scene where his mother is yelling at him in their house or apartment and She's in the hallway. Every time they focus on her in the hallway, it's got that hypnotic kind of purplish reddish glow, almost like hell. She is the gateway to hell in his world. And it's funny to see how the color palette changes throughout the course of the film. One thing that really struck me about this film, and in terms of especially the visuals, is it really helps to accentuate the discussion about masculinity, and especially black male masculinity. When I saw this film at TIFF, I saw this and birth of a nation back to back so it, it's kind of funny because birth of the nation was the film at the beginning of the year that everyone was talking about and was supposed to be the quote-unquote end to oscar so white and now towards the end of the year moonlight is the film that has taken that place and i was talking to an older couple a few days later and they were asking about just discussing like what we've seen what was our favorite thing and they were raving about la la land which i've heard nothing but good things about and i started talking about moonlight they didn't really know much about it and they seemed very interested until i said and i've never seen black masculinity captured in such a riveting way and i could see on their face where you know that moment where they you just kind of lose interest where i can tell <laughs> like their, their face just read yeah oh it's a it's an african-american film all right, don't need to see that, right? And I was like, no, no. Uh, yeah. you, the thing is, like, it's even though it's a film that's about black masculinity, it's about so much more. So me being a black male will go in and just get a gut punch from that aspect. But anyone can to go into this film and still be enraptured and gutted by the coming-of-age tale, right? It really is a universal film, despite its narrow focus on a particular set. And I know this film, I guess, was based off of a play by Terrell Alvin McCartney, and his play was called In the Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue. And there is a lot of blue in this film, not just in terms of his mood, but like how it's shot. It's just a wonderful use of color, and the performances are off the chain. The three actors that he got to play Chiron at the various stages, I think are destined for big things. And in the Q&A, Barry Jenkins had said that Naomi Harris, who plays Chiron's mother, was only on set for three days. And they shot all of her stuff within a three-day turnaround time. And when you see her work in this film, and you go, wow, she pulled out that emotion in only three days. Like, it's, it's just fantastic. When you talk about it centering on black masculinity and commenting on that, it's cool that Moonlight actually shares a acting thread with one of the other big successful commercial art projects this year of Luke Cage. Maher Shala Ali, he plays Cottonmouth in Luke Cage. And when that show really starts hitting its stride, it criticizes respectability politics and what being a black man means in different communities and how that is a positive negative in each and great like that. So Mr. Ali's performance in Luke Cage, I could see how he could just do this sort of stuff all day. So that's just a cool little connection I wanted to point out because Mr. Ali is clearly doing good work this year. Yeah, and in Moonlight, it's funny because he, in Luke Cage, he's Cottonmouth, the crime lord, drug dealer, weapons, and in Moonlight, he plays a drug dealer, but he is a drug dealer who 
I think is one of the few people that shows Chiron any sort of compassion as he's on his quest for identity and stuff. Really, like all of us, we just want people to be compassionate and understanding. It's funny, he gets that from a drug dealer, but at the same time, the drug dealer is the same one who's feeding his mother the drugs that's ruining her and ruining his life. So it's an interesting paradox, right? It's It's just wonderful. I can't state it enough. Like, go see it. It is one of the best films of the year. Excellent. And as a violent gear shift, quite literally, Amanda and myself, what we were able to do yesterday was finally watch Jeremy Saulnier's Green Room, which is continuing on his path of extremely pointed American criticism built around these thrillers. He is probably the best young American director working in genre films like this. One thing that I've been thinking about, especially in the aftermath of the election, is liberal complacency and how we put forward liberals in general. And again, this may not apply to you, the listener. We, you know, we put forward these great images and these happy thoughts and then don't fall through that with protection or legislation or anything like that. And Solnier's movies have been very much about the toxic underbelly of primarily white people who have been left behind by this sort of liberal complacency. Like his very first movie, Murder Party, great movie. It was about a bunch of theater majors and English majors getting together to kill a stranger to make a statement. And then none of them can agree on what the statement is. And they start arguing and then killing each other. So he's been focusing on this kind of complacency from the beginning. And then he took it in a different direction with Blue Ruin, where the hero or more the protagonist, he's not much of a hero, ends up lashing out at the wrong people because of a murder and death that he attributes to others. And Solnier in the background is always placing this idealized suburban experience right out of his reach. He has to pick trash outside these gentrified neighborhoods. And then with Green Room... It is a decidedly less sympathetic take on those white Americans who feel like they've been left behind, but is still a really sharp criticism of that kind of liberal complacency. It mixes the economic problems in two, because in Green Room, you've got competing punks, basically, who are struggling to make ends meet while touring the country and hopefully getting their music promoted. But they don't realize exactly what they're feeding into. There's an early sequence early on where they launch into the dead Kennedys die Nazi fuckers or something like that. I can't remember the exact title of it right now. But Solnier steps back and shows how even that, that agitation and their ignorance of that agitation ends up fueling more of the hate directed back at them. It's a great movie. I mean, it's just an excellent movie. Directors like Solnier, I think, are going to be really important going forward. Uh, Raman Bahrani, um, the guy who did Man Push Cart, Chop Shop, 99 Homes. His last two films, At Any Price and 99 Homes, hone in on the destructiveness of white capital and white complacency in very different ways. But Green Room, with its violence and its many, many Nazi killings, was cathartic. At the same time, I recognized the criticism that was really needed there. So very different from Moonlight, <laughs> I can imagine, uh, unless I guess there's a machete murder scene or anything like that. No, there's definitely none of that in Moonlight. But I remember seeing Greenlight for I think, the first time earlier this year, and I absolutely loved it. And it's funny because when you talked about that scene, I think it was with the Dead Kennedys. One of the things that struck me about Green Room was the, in terms of the agitation, was like the poor decision making. A lot of the times, you, I kept thinking, this all could have been avoided if for this one moment, you just kind of kept your mouth shut and got the heck out of there, right? But it just seemed, as the film progressed, they kept making terrible decisions, kept agitating even further and further, and then it was jaw-dropping. Like I, One of the things that struck me about the film too is I got to the point where I was never quite sure which character would live and which character would die which is always a good thing in these type of thrillers but some of the deaths just come so fast and so unexpectedly that I was literally on the edge of my seat for most of it and it's it's interesting tie-in especially when you think of what is going on in the world right now and how everyone's looking for not only answers but um, where to place the blame and starting to really take a honest look at those who are either disenfranchised or those who feel that like they've been 
been disenfranchised for some reason or another. So yeah, very interesting connection. And when you're talking about the poor decision making, almost all of those decisions come out of complacency. One of the earliest sequences when they get trapped in the room and the Nazi commander, basically, even though he disguises himself as a race conscious bar owner. I did like the little slabs in Green Room of trying to take the piss out of that kind of bullshit posturing. But when all our protagonists who basically <laughs> created this situation by not recognizing the danger or the people they were dealing with, when they're all arguing amongst themselves about whether they should give the Nazis outside the door the only weapon they have, this gun and the bullets. And when you talk about that poor decision making, it's like you guys are dealing with literal Nazis. It's that whole parable of the frog who gives the scorpion a ride and the scorpion stings them. And it's like, what were you guys expecting in the wake of the election? Pretty much shows that a lot of people what they're expecting. And I guess that complacency and kind of hoping for the best, not always the best call, especially when you're dealing with people who are literally Nazis. Yeah, it's funny because when you were talking about the gun scene in relation to the, the election, I was thinking back to, I guess it was maybe about two or three months ago when I think one of the Republican campaign offices had burned down and it was like a, I think the Democrat running that area as a show of good faith was trying to muster up money to help them build back their office so that it could be a fair and impartial campaign. I remember reading a couple of think pieces on that, and one was all like, oh, it's a wonderful gesture, and it shows solidarity. And the other person was like, well, you don't give the weapon to the enemy. You don't <laughs> You don't uh, prop up and strengthen the enemy so that they can come back at you in a fight. That's not the way how things work. So it's just funny how sometimes uh, art and life kind of cross over in different ways. While I admit there are times to be conciliatory and try and help your other person up, folks, if you're listening, do not fucking donate money to your political opponents when those political opponents are working to actively suppress the votes of your own supporters. I mean, that's this wishy-washy liberal good feeling that doesn't do anyone any good, as we've definitely seen in the long run. So I like that you brought up that example because that has been one of the things that's very much been in the forefront of my mind on complacency and now the violence that we've seen come from it. So Green Room, it's timely. It's intense. Solnir is amazing. Give it a whirl. And hopefully you'll get some of the same catharsis and thinking out of it that I did. With two different movies tying in in different ways to events that are going on, we are going to shift our focus and go straight to medicine for melancholy. We're going to take a quick break to change these reels up and then we'll get cracking. Welcome back with Changing Reels. We're going to be discussing for our feature film this week, Medicine for Melancholy from 2008. It was directed and written by Barry Jenkins, stars Wyatt Cenac and Tracy Higgins. And the cinematography was done by James Laxton. It's a movie where some people might say not much happens. They'd kind of be right, but they would also kind of be wrong. Two strangers, uh, Micah and Joe, played by Cenac and uh, Higgins, respectively, wake up after a sexual tryst that occurred at a party. Neither knows the other's name nor really what happened. So to overcome their unfamiliarity with each other and try and make sense of whatever attraction they must have felt to wake up with each other, they spend the next 24 hours kind of wandering around the city, getting into a lot of conversations, engaging in a lot of art and food and basically just feel each other out try and see if this is a good fit for them and work out those problems along the way this was my first time with medicine for melancholy i have to admit this has been on my i should have watched it forever ago list for forever danny reed who was my old writing partner at can't stop the movies and now runs the indispensable pre-code website he told me not asked but just told me i needed to watch it in 2009 2010 because he knew i was gonna love it he was absolutely right but i've rambled enough on my first time in giving the broad outlines of things so courtney 
get us started, man. Well, I have to join you guys in saying I, I really enjoyed it as well. I can see how some people would say not much happens, especially the way how the leisurely pacing of the film, but I don't know, I was really taken by this film, and I like how you talked about the attraction that they must have felt, because the bulk of this film is really them trying to figure out what is it about this other person that piqued my interest. It had to be more than we just drank a whole lot of alcohol and that other person was in the room, so I loved seeing how they go from strangers who barely talk to each other, because at least the first part of this film, there's not much dialogue that's occurring to slowly learning about each other. There's that great shot of them climbing up the hill, and you see the whole San Francisco city right there marching towards something that's even bigger than them. Like, you know, this relationship, potential relationship, I should say, is going to be bigger than anything that they are currently experiencing right now and you get the sense that it's going to change the way that they look at themselves and the world around them and since you brought up the dialogue or lack thereof with medicine for melancholy when i got done with it i was thinking how this would be a great accompaniment or a compliment to love jones which we talked about two episodes ago because they're both in a way about art and they're also pretty explicitly about relationships, but the way art and the relationships unfold here is used very differently. And that's why I think it would make a good accompaniment versus, you know, a contrast or anything like that. With Love Jones, it felt like the art was texture for the relationship. We were getting music that we weren't hearing normally and the relationships was built so much on their friends, poems and art. We got so much of that music and so much of those poetic club surroundings. Medicine for Melancholy, the art, it's textured in, but it's literally built into the city. We see a lot of plaques. We see a lot of museums. We hear a lot of diegetic noise at the club. We hear a lot of non-diegetic noise via some of the wonderful jazz compositions on the soundtrack. I like focusing on the idea of the two of them walking toward the city that they may be going to a better future. You know, there's something bigger out there. They're both bringing out different perspectives on the art that is chiseled into the city. One of my absolute favorite shots is actually a scene I had to replay because my notes were wrong. But when they go into the museum, they barely say anything, which is good museum etiquette. Kudos for these characters. But they're listening to different shots of music, different monologues and such. And then after they stop at, I think it's a photograph of, oh, it's a photograph or a painting of what the view from slaves must have been from the ship. And they go into a curtained room where it's completely dark. And then we hear this monologue of, of someone who lived through oppression. I had to replay it because I was so impressed with how Medicine for Melancholy was integrating the experiences of art directly into the city. That I was like, man, it was really great for Barry Jenkins to cut out all the visuals and just focus on the words. But that's not what happened. My eyes, when they adjusted to the darkness of the scene, we can see their outlines close, but not as close as they're going to get later. They're close to each other, standing there and taking this in. Throughout Medicine for Melancholy, I mean, that's what I really liked, is as they were getting comfortable with each other, they're taking in this information, figuring out what they're going to do to process it next. And I think there's something to be said about the metaphor of me or I guess the experience of me, a, a white dude, assuming that it was total blackness and not seeing the two individuals at the center of it. Yeah. So I'm glad I rewound that. Yeah, that's very funny because in that scene, I took it more as you're hearing the experience of the slaves and the history and you're seeing, it's almost like to me that in that scene, they were like statues, you know, and the statues of the past, but also the future. It's kind of interesting how we both looked at that from different perspectives because I felt like that scene was talking so much about where they came from as, as people and where they will be going right? as a culture. And I like that you tied in the way that art weaves into the city. If you really think about it, their identities are directly tied to the city. For Micah, he's very much one who is tied to 
the issue of gentrification and how that is ruining San Francisco. And it gets to the point where his black identity is so tied into his love of the city and what's shaping the city that he almost can't see the good sides of the city. At one point, she talks about how not everything is about race. And that's not to dismiss the importance of it because she is very aware of what's going on racially, her experiences as a black woman. She's all in tune with that, but she can also see that you sometimes you need perspective. As much as he is everything he says is, well, as a black man, this is happening and this is happening. She's the one who educates him on the history of Black History Month, why it was picked on, on February. It's not just a punchline of it being the shortest month. She actually goes into depth of it, right? So I found that kind of interesting too, that tug of war, because the city is really the third character in this film, and it plays an important role in both of their perspectives on life and each other. And that also ties into the two color shots that are in Medicine for Melancholy. The first one, I didn't quite get why it was used, because that's when Micah is making tea for Joe. As he's talking about the city and what he loves about it versus the hate, he says, it. I hate it, but I love it. It's got nothing to do with beatniks or hippies or privilege. It just is that. So that was his perspective on the city. And the corresponding shots there, it's not perfectly crisp, uber detailed shots of the city. It's just of daily life, you know, people walking down, shopping, these great long shots of the city in color as he's describing it. He really loves the city for the city. As the problems start cropping up between Micah and Joe, pretty much because Micah is so obsessed with the idea that race is so specifically tied into things, that that last color shot, which is at the very end of the movie, when Joe, I first thought, was getting a new perspective on life. The way that the camera looked around and and seemed a bit more like a hand cam versus a steady cam shot. When it started, it looked like a shot of Joe taking stock of her new surroundings, of what was going on around her. And then when it went to the balcony and the camera tilted down and we saw Joe leave, I felt my heart just break. Yeah, this was giving her perspective that I guess wasn't more strongly in her life. But what I was getting over the course of the night was that this was perspective she was not ignorant of, that she was making her choices as an adult woman who chooses to be in a relationship with a white man. And just that last bit with her kind of looking back at it in this color framed the first color shot in a better perspective for me, because both of those shots they center around perspective and like a brief explosion of love. But at the end, the history is tied in with the streets. Joe, from her perspective, she has to go back and become part of that history instead of just, you know, staying chiseled in in the dark. Yeah, I was wondering, though, because I had to watch that particular scene a couple of times because it comes right after Micah is pleading for her to stay the night. She's basically saying she's got to go, that she has a previous relationship that she needs to sort out. Then you get that great shot as you're talking about where he pans across the room and takes stock of everything and you see her leave. So the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, she just took off that night. And then I was like, well, wait a minute. It's daytime now. Is she taking off from his place to sort out her life and come back? Or is she gone for good? Like, it was one of those that really left me thinking. I kind of liked that it wasn't so clear-cut. It wasn't in the typical romantic comedy tropes, but it was just a really interesting and effective way to have us think about life for them as individuals, but also just the way how the city is changing people and, in some cases, pushing people away. When you were talking earlier about how you wanted to uh, avoid comparisons between between Jenkins's latest movie, Moonlight, and Boyhood, it was really hard for me to watch Medicine for Melancholy and not think of the Richard Linklater before trilogy, before Sunrise, before Sunset, and before Midnight. The ambiguity that those movies in on, you could make a comparison, okay, Medicine for Melancholy's a little more ambiguous than those two, but in the Before trilogy, they end on reconciliation and hope. They don't end with a fight, or they don't end with the two main characters not being able to say goodbye to each other. With Medicine for Melancholy and the end there, it's a lot more ambiguous. You know, this is a city. She could just get lost in the city again. She could come back. I like the way the montage right before that color scene 
makes things confusing. It cuts from them kissing, and it's hard to tell if it was from earlier in the day or in the evening when they finally came back after their fight. I really liked Micah's line, just stay here tonight. You can go back to your life tomorrow. It echoes what he was saying earlier when she said this is just a one-night stand, and he says, well, it's just been one night. Okay, but we're ending, and now it's been two nights. It's not like she takes her bike and flees. They were able to habitate together again. Whatever it is, that fight didn't completely break it. She didn't leave him then and there, but she left him later. That, to me, is a lot more powerful than even the end of Before Sunset, which is one of my all-time favorite movies, period. So that means Medicine for Melancholy is giving it a run for its money. But in Before Sunset, you're getting all this angst and sadness and worry out all at once, and it ends with him staying with her. Whereas here, it still has that kind of drifting appeal of Linklater's movies, but it's a lot more grounded. There are lots of philosophical discussions in almost all of Linklater's movies, like Waking Life is obviously the hugest example, and Slacker and all that. It's not tied to as much concrete hope and fear as it is with Medicine for Melancholy. That resonates with me just on a different way. Much like we were talking about the two statues and our different views on when they were listening to the slave narrative in the dark, there's also that part later on when they're walking around the city and they stumble in on a group who's having an open conversation about gentrification and the diversity of the group. And that is more directly tied, but it's not tied in an easy way. Micah and Joe are still trying to make this work. The history of gentrification isn't something that they can solve in one nice night or one productive round of conversation. So the, the way that the sparse dialogue worked with the silence, and I think a better way of putting it may be just the moments they aren't speaking, because there is a lot of that filler dialogue when neither of them are speaking and they're just listening versus something like a Linklater film where it seems like someone's got an audience. They're going to use it to get their philosophical point out and then they're going to go, whereas Medicine for Melancholy takes it all in and doesn't try and provide any kind of clear solution on anything. That's a theme that you'll see again in Moonlight, similar to this film, but obviously to a much greater extent. Moonlight is very much you know, about the search for understanding identity and who defines your identity and to kind of taking ownership over it. And I felt that a lot of that is occurring in this film as well, but just on, I guess, a subtler plane. So it's interesting that in the moments where they're not talking to each other and they're kind of listening to the city and listening to what's going on around them, you still get the sense that everyone is trying to make sense of this shifting world that they live in and how you define their relationships, how do they define each other, how does San Francisco as a city identify itself now with the sweeping changes that are pushing the lower middle class and poor out for upper middle class and essentially white? So that whole quest for identity, you'll get again in Moonlight. And it's, it'd be interesting to for you to come back and just kind of compare the two. Yeah, because there were some amusing parts in Medicine for Melancholy, too, that wrestle around with that idea of identity in a shifting city. Toward the end, right before they've had their fight, they've been out dancing in the clubs and so on. They stop and get tacos, and these two black guys come up, and one of them asks Micah, you know, are you good? Do you need anything? And Micah's like, nah, man, nah, man, we're straight. No, the immediate assumption that you would make is that they're trying to sell him drugs, so that when he pulls out the Arizona tea and the kombucha, it's just one of those things where movies have to drop <laughs> some of these stereotypes, but not go in, in such a, like, stupid yuppie direction that was a great little moment of what seemed to be two guys who realize this couple is stoned so they decide to use these snacks to kind of screw with them a bit and just the, the pronunciation on that kombucha made me really happy so that goes back to the, just the, the central pen of the movie i mean melancholy isn't an overtly depressing thing melancholy is more of a weariness it allows for moments of happiness and allows moments for sadness and anger but it's this world kind of wearying in on you and it's more of an emotional exhaustion those brief entertaining moments where they misrecognized other people's identities it was just such a welcome breath in all this and showed how medicine for melancholy 
wasn't interested in just this relationship. It was interested in this texture of race in the city. And that part made me laugh. <laughs> That's one of my favorite scenes as well. The comedic beat in that was perfect. And I liked how he incorporated humor with these themes because there's that scene when she's fed up of having the racial conversation with him. And she's like, I want to just go and dance. And the first thing he says, so do you want to go to a white club or a black club? You know? (laughs) And then I I think where they ended up was predominantly white. I think you did see other people there. And they have the time of their lives. It was a great moment where he pauses everything and you just see them dancing and the euphoria of that. And I also like that it echoes a scene earlier when they're on the merry-go-round. And for that moment, they're just enjoying being around each other and enjoying what the city has to offer where it's not about race it's not about politics it's just about two individuals sharing a moment and i like how he's able to incorporate those little nuggets you know with the humor as well even that club scene while medicine for melancholy came out you know almost a decade now eight years that club scene plays to a lot of tension right now that is in indie music and indie rock bands and such there was a piece that came out on uh, pitchfork last year which was called the unbearable whiteness of indie as i was listening to the music it sounded a lot like bands like arcade fire or block party i even caught a whiff of death cab for cutie in there you know how his question about that while it was a joke you know we're going to a white club or a black club even in the music in the club we were getting that tension it wasn't as pronounced and you know admittedly it's it's in my mind partly because of the things that i've been thinking about from the unbearable whiteness of indie pitchfork piece but it's those kind of assumptions that we do have to question where medicine for melancholy kind of takes it a further i think is how much should we let those questions consume our identity instead of supplement it when he wasn't talking about that when he was just dancing and, and being with her everything was great but once he started questioning his surroundings justifiably or not and i think totally justifiably even though you know screws up the relationship it keeps him from having some kind of peace with her and again it just shows even with that even with the music used in this there's no easy solution to it i'm a huge arcade fire fan so i've been to i think about four of their concerts and as much as i love the music there are times though where i'll notice i look around and there is a particular how should i put this a particular clientele that's there as, <laughs> as, as much as there there are diverse fans there you could really tell the percentage right so when he made that reference i instantly started thinking back to like the few indie shows i've been to and even some of the hip-hop shows i've been to and who really makes up that demographic part of me was kind of nodding my head knowingly and then another part of me was like well yeah but you know you can still enjoy the night just as he does to a certain extent but it does weigh on your mind especially when for myself as a black male i know i've been in more situations where I've been the minority in the group opposed to a lot of my friends who are white the other way around. Yeah, that's why I don't think he's exactly wrong to question those spaces because, you know, one of the other indie darling bands that I love is TV on the radio. I mean, they're just fantastic. There is an interesting shift in their music back in their Return to Cookie Mountain days, there was stuff that sounded dangerous and sexy and longing, and they didn't lose that as they went on, but it got streamlined, and as it got more streamlined, in a different way, I noticed the audience getting a bit more homogenized, and then that's also when the TV on the radio members, some of them ended up going off to do Jonathan Demi movies and make wine, and that's what puts me back to, I guess, being a bit more on joe's side is we have to ask these questions but if things are okay if we're having some good times for a second can we just take a second enjoy this good thing and then we'll get back to fighting and so on it's sometimes a lot easier for me to say can things just be okay than for other people but since we're on the topic of music and with tv on the radio and how some people have been upset at their streamlining i still think they make great music (laughs) again those are conflicting opinions i love their earlier raw stuff wolf like me is maybe depending on what time of the day you get me the best song ever written but it's about being okay with those changes they go through and while we have to take into consideration race and class and sexuality we also have to be okay with being okay if if only for a second That is very true, and I think that's one thing that this film does really well, is it raises these issues 
makes you think about them. It doesn't really tell you how you're supposed to think. He just presents it as it is, but it does it in a way where you can see both sides. Even a character like Micah, who will get caught up in his own identity and what his identity means for the city, could turn around and easily say, but I love this city, and still appreciate it for what it is. And he may berate her for having a white boyfriend. Although, when they showed up the MySpace page that he had, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, the girlfriend that broke his heart was a fair skin. So, I don't know. I To me, she looked white, but who knows? Because, again, the film is predominantly shot in a kind of sepia-like color, so that may have played a role in how I perceive his ex. But and can we just talk about the use of the sepia in this film? Because the DVD I have, it, Barry Jenkins had a, I guess, an audio interview when he was at, I think, the London Film Fest, and he was talking about merging of the colors to get that kind of sepia-like look. And I guess when they realized that they had that, that they knew that that was exactly what they wanted for the film. And I found it interesting that his reasoning for using it was because he says San Francisco's always shown in a wonderful light when you see it on film. And he says, but in reality, San Francisco was very much like London, kind of dreary and for all its wonderful things, he wanted to kind of bring out that dreariness, which also plays up into the melancholy. And what struck me about watching this film was the look of it early on. I think it was made for like 15 grand or so, but the choice of color that he uses until you get the, the two scenes that you mentioned with the full impact of what it would regularly look like, I thought it was a really interesting choice. When I was watching it, I was having weird kind of cognitive dissonance. I'm glad you brought that up because I was looking at it and my brain was like, this isn't exactly black and white. What is this? And it was keeping me engaged. Other than the way that the color is used, it's fantastically shot. Now that you've brought up the sepia aspect to it, sepia paints in shades of brown. That's why you know maybe looking at it, if it was straight ahead black and white versus color mixing that they did to get that sepia, it would have maybe made the racial conversations that they have a little too pointed because it would be emphasizing via the style of the movie that there is a black and a white, that there is that kind of separation. But by allowing that sepia-ness to kind of seep in through everything, it forces us to take in the texture of the city and really pay attention to the monuments and the songs and the clubs and the streets. The city isn't a perfect being here. And it goes back to what you're saying way at the beginning about the city being the third most important character. The city blurs with them when they get stoned. With the color scenes, it's two different perspectives on the beauty of the city even if it's not in the best circumstances. And it's present throughout. Maybe the clearest shot scene is when they're first going into the museum and they go under a fountain. It's their shadows and their bodies and the reassuring way Micah lightly touches the small of her back so that she can come see what he's seeing. That use of sepia and those grand shots, we'd be focused more on shadow. We'd be focused more on contrast, not texture. By having shades of brown with the characters in these conversations, we have to pay attention to that texture instead of looking for that division. I want to just jump back to one quick thing that you had pointed out. When you were talking about TV on the radio and you were saying about how one of the members went off to do Jonathan Demi films, to tie this all back to Barry Jenkins and Moonlight. In the TIFF screening that I was at, Barry Jenkins for Moonlight, he and uh, the entire cast were there and they were taking audience questions. And the very last question came from Jonathan Demi. And, <laughs> <Cool. laughs> and he was like, you know, really just raving about the film. And he asked the question, I think it was about in relation to the use of music and how it influenced a lot of the action and accentuated the characters. It's one of the rare moments where I have witnessed a director get starstruck while on stage because as much as Barry Jenkins did a great job of answering the question, you could just tell that he was absolutely stunned that Jonathan Demi was sitting there, not only just asking him a question, but praising his film. A lot of times we talk about these films and these artists and forget that at the end of the day, they're just regular people. It was one of those nice little human moments that brought a smile to my face. And even walking out, I tried to take a little covert photo of Barry Jenkins <laughs> and Jonathan Demi meeting outside the theater for the first time and shaking hands and stuff. It came out really blurry but it was just one of those memories that will always be ingrained in my mind and i know it's a little sorry it was a little tangent there but 
Well, no, I, I think that applies a lot. Like even your slightly blurry photos, since we're talking about sepia and bleeding together, and you know, even that story itself, it, it just shows how well Barry Jenkins got the texture for Medicine for Melancholy, because this came out the same year as Demi's Rachel Getting Married, which also tried for this textured, lived-in feel more with musical instruments because they wanted people playing and singing and such with not as much structure so that as Jonathan Demi was following Anne Hathaway's Kim in that movie, we were getting a textured feel to the wedding of the cultures intermingling and how Kim both complements and detracts from it. So it makes perfect sense that Medicine for Melancholy, which to me is a superior picture. I think Rachel Getting Married is really good, though. How Demi would just be starstruck in a sense of... Oh, you mean Jenkins uh, would be starstruck? Well... (laughs) Or you think both? It's possible. Because of the way that Rachel Getting Married, it tried for that texture, but it didn't quite completely get there. I could just see Demi watching Medicine for Melancholy and going, that's it! And movies dealing with very different things, but Demi has always had a very ethereal touch on stuff. And melancholy, it's a vague sense of disquiet or sadness that doesn't quite get in the way of things. So with that story, I could just easily see how Demi, especially with Rachel getting married in his earlier films, responded to so strongly with that, you know, that ethereal texture. When you see Moonlight, the use of color and texture is just wonderful. The film got a standard ovation on my screening, and I know there's been a couple of articles recently about saying about how TIFF is a little too generous in terms of giving outstanding ovations, but this was one of those films where you could just feel it, right? And, and watching Medicine for Melancholy, I'm seeing a lot of the beginnings of what is almost perfected in light, and I'm just, I'm excited to see what Jenkins does next. After these two films, I'm on board for whatever he comes out with. I know he has a short film I could probably have to track down. It might be one of our short picks of the week, but yeah, this guy's <laughs> just pure, just pure talent. I'm down with that. And uh, also, we don't really talk about performances overall too much. We've talked a lot about acting in specific scenes or like in the case with The Caveman's Valentine when we chatted with that, the way that Samuel Jackson ends up bouncing off of everybody. I liked the way that Micah and his behavior is a lot more uncertain in the way that he talks to Joe, whereas Joe is a lot more, I guess, closed off isn't exactly right, but she embraces the uncertainty a lot more than Micah does, who (laughs) also highlighting his own internal contradictions about race ends up kind of winning her over by singing, Will You Be My Neighbor, which is Mr. Rogers. An extremely white dude in a sweater who nonetheless loved people. Micah's uncertainty here and the way that Senak brought it out. I like the way they did a lot of subtle repetition with his words. At the at the end, in addition to the Arizona tea kombucha laughter, I liked when he was ordering the food and he just went hot, 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 mild, 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 to go, to go, to go, and just kind of let himself fade out like he was saying those things to remind himself to stay in the moment and then lost it. A second later when he got angry with her. But Senak was great in this. And I like that uh, Jenkins structured Medicine for Melancholy in a way that it's not as creepy him tracking her down to give her her stuff. She He actually cared about her and wanted to make sure that you know she was okay and got her wallet back versus Love Jones where the romance works out. The characters acknowledge the creepiness, but I don't know. It, it's kind of hard to put because I Everything is so uncertain that the behavior in Medicine for Melancholy made a lot more sense. And Cenac's uncertainty and blind repetitions, that really helps me there. Yeah, and I think also it's a testament to how good Tracy Higgins is in the role of Joe. Because when she starts off, she is very guarded. And part of that is obviously she doesn't know him. But you get the sense early on that it's general safety reasons. As a woman, she's waking up in a bed with a man who she had an encounter with, doesn't know his name, doesn't know anything, gives him a fake name, tells the cabbie that she lives at a particular place, which is completely not where she... Like, she does everything in her power to ensure her safety. And as you would expect a woman in that situation to do. And yet, as the film progresses and she begins to warm to him and open up, you've got a completely different side of her and 
as a result, you see the effect it has on Micah. And I thought she did a really good job. I don't recall seeing her in anything else. I'm going to have to jump on IMDb because it could be one of those cases where she's just been one of those character actresses or actresses that have been working steadily for a while that I didn't take notice. But both her and Sinek, I'm definitely keeping an eye out for. Yeah, I'm glad that you focused on that self-protectedness because there's this complicated bit of acting she does close to the beginning when they're sharing the cab with each other. She's kind of covering herself up, but she's not exactly covering herself up because of Micah. It's more that she keeps side glancing at the front of the taxi like not only is she taking these steps to protect herself in case Micah's a creep she's also kind of worried about what the cab driver thinks of them in her own way because of how she covers up and glances suspiciously so when she finally does let go and she is so effervescent and teasing Micah and such that the end does come with such heartache when she looks back up and we don't know if she said bye. We don't know if this is the end of it. You know, maybe heartache is the wrong thing to say because it is so uncertain, but it is definitely melancholy and Micah seemed to exist in a perpetual state of it. And that's reflected in Cenac's performance versus Heggins who comes in and out of it and Big question mark as to where it'll go from there. In my mind, I like to believe that better days are ahead for both of them. I don't know whether it be together or not, but I'm putting my own little optimistic slant on the uncertainty. So I don't know about you, Andrew, but did you have anything else you want to bring in? Because I think that's a good way to end it on a high note. Considering the uncertainty that we face here in the world, I think optimism is a nice embracing point to end on. So we'll go ahead and wrap things up then. If you enjoyed this talk, give us a comment. We're going to include the links to our official Twitter page and email in the descriptions below. You can find me on Twitter at CantStopDrew. Courtney, how about yourself? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at SmallMind. And as Andrew said, you can reach out to us on Twitter at ChangingReelsAC for Andrew and Courtney. And email, I believe, is changing.reels.ac at Gmail. But we'd also like to end for a round of thanks. Dan Heaton, of course, for suggesting we do Medicine for Melancholy. And Ariel and Bob over at A Frame Apart at Modern Superior because they have been very supportive and good at promotion, which... I am terrible at, and I think Courtney's pretty good at, but he's probably going to be modest and say that he isn't so good at this point. Yeah, no, seriously, I'm terrible at it, <laughs> uh, but look how long it took us to get the Twitter account going, but we're getting better. We're, we're going to work on it. I really hope that all of you who have listened, we do want to get your suggestions because I think moving forward, we're trying to be optimistic and hopeful. We still need to work to shine the light on those diverse voices, and we need to talk about them and embrace all of our goodness as much as we can. So that'll end things for me today. For Changing Reels, I'm Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. And we'll see you next time. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network. 